You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I don't know what to say, except those are two as different stories as I've heard on one night. I don't know. Let's just open it up. Does anybody um, have anything to say, or should I invent something? (laughs) Well, totally frivolous question. So, Karen, do you think after uh, her sister went off with the the people that the narrator may have taken up sheep herding? Yes, it appears that that's a solitary activity that would probably <laughs> suit her well. Well, to, to me, it's kind of interesting because it sort of runs this, I mean, just talking, you know, we a lot of times here we just kind of piss and moan about the fate of science fiction and, <laughs> and all that. But it's kind of interesting to me to look structurally at, I sound like a professor, but, you know, the there's how you do science fiction. And this is a science fiction story, although it, it has none of the, it doesn't have the sound or the feel of science fiction. And it's like, it's like there's two ways to go at it. There's one, one way is where you, you, you keep moving. It's like you're on very thin ice and you keep, you ne- I think what Karen's story is about, where you never, you never let the reader exactly sit down. And you never, you never let your feet go through the through the ice. And Molly's story to me is like the opposite. It's one where it's totally grounded from the very beginning in like, um, uh, in the in the you know, it's like in the quotidian, as it were, you know. And I just think it's very interesting because I think they're both really excellent stories of a very different sort. You know? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I like Karen's story and she likes mine, so we're we got well, no quarrel. Right. <laughs> no, we're not here to quarrel. Blum line. Actually, Carrie, I was. Uh, oh. Yeah, you gotta. <laughs> Do that again. Oh, come on. <laughs> I just can't stand up. I actually was uh, was struck by how similar they were. Sorry, Terry. Um, Emotionally, they were just extreme. They were, to me, it was about loss. It was, um, K- Karen's was just so sad to me, just so sad. And Molly's wasn't really sad, it w- um, but, but there was really a sense of a woman who was quite alone, um, and she'd lost something too, a lot. So structurally, I agree, there were, Karen's was, was, wonderfully clever and full of cool digressions that sort of swirled around and kind of spiraled in and eventually ended up at the one point. Molly's, I thought, was just, just got deeper, deeper with the same kind of rhythmic, poetic kind of um, repetition in a very wonderful way. But emotionally, to me, they were... uh, Really, very alike. Wonderful, very wonderful. Interesting. I I, I discovered, uh, it was about two or three years ago, I was in, um, and I told Michael this, I've told other people, 
I was, uh, I, where was I? Somewhere out in the valley waiting. For, my wife was running an errand or something. And I had Gardner's uh, greatest science fiction stories ever told or something, one of these big, you know, 300,000-word anthologies <laughs> of his. And I, I, I had never heard of Molly. I didn't know her work. And I picked it up, and it absolutely blew me away. As a, it's a, it's a first contact story, but it's a very unusual first contact story because it's because of the, the tone and the way that it's handled. And, I, and as I told Michael, I think it's one of the two or three. You know, first contact stories are a staple of science fiction. So they're, they're really one of the, the most, um, they're, you know, it's, it's a, well, they're a staple. They're a, it's, a, it's a, a repeatable and often used form in science fiction. It's one of the things science fiction is about, you know, is the contact with the other. And it's one of the reasons we read it, or that I always started out reading it. And this, this one puts, uh, you can't even say a new twist on it. It just puts a, a different, it reminded me a little bit um, of E.T. You know, the, remember the scene, the first contact scene in E.T. is where the kid shows E.T. the, the uh, toys. You know, that's, that's how, so you've got a character that completely changes how that, that uh, that encounter goes, and that's that's uh, what to me is so great about Molly's story is that you know you you start with this character. It, what's it about? It's about dogs, you know. It's about dogs, rocks, and this and this woman, and how she and sheep. I'm not quite sure how the sheep get into it, but the sheep. How do they? They start and end the story. You know, they make her who she is, just as she's. She looks after the sheep, but it seems like the sheep sort of form her character in a way. And, and the last line of the story says that, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know what role they play, except that um, it's pretty commonly known that most sheep herders have seen UFOs um, routinely. They see them all the time. Um, oh, really? I never yeah. knew that. Mm -hmm. So like Kucinich. And, and that's where <laughs> <laughs> I've seen a UFO. Really? I have. What was it? What was it? What I have no idea. UFO <laughs> just means that I didn't know what it was. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and in this country, in, in the, this is modeled after this after Steens Mountain in southeastern Oregon. And oh, that's Steens Mountain. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's what Joe Johns is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. Steens Mountain is. Uh, I've never been there, but I've read about it. It's this very large, massive yeah. in the mm -hmm. sort of in the high desert. And is what you saw similar to what you described no, in the sky? No, I didn't see anything fall like, like, the, like she sees. No, I just saw something up there. You realize that your presidential aspirations <laughs> now are... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I guess there's hardly been a president who didn't see a UFO. <laughs> I, I'm wondering, both these stories are really set in landscapes that really grow out of the landscapes very differently in, in, in different ways. So I wonder if each of you guys could talk about the how you formed the landscape or where you discovered it and why it kind of turned so odd. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, uh, I, my daughter and I took a trip to Spain and saw, um, saw the stairs, uh, went uh, I can't remember now exactly which town we were in, but walked 
many, many, many flights of stairs down and then many, many flights of stairs up, which... Is it like in a cave? It's inside? Yeah, it's, it, there are stone stairs cut out and from and the inside. And, and because I was with my daughter, I walked down every one of them. I don't think there's another person in the world. I would have walked down so many. Because I'm the sort of person who, as you're walking downstairs, is very aware that you're going to have to walk back up them. <laughs> um, but there, there was just something about those those stone stairs that was very trippy um, to me. The, and everything else I made up, but uh, I just I started with the stairs, and and perhaps a bit of resentment that my daughter could scamper up and down them in a way that I could not. <laughs> um, and where did your start? Um. Well, I had been to Scenes Mountain and seen the UFO. Um, my dog had just died. I, I had just put him down. Um, and my husband had just had died the year before. And this is the only thing I wrote in three years um, after he died. Um, so I think it was, uh, you know, it was a story about somebody recovering from grief and the, uh, the mountain and the UFO thing having happened um, informed it. The landscape, I guess, is in some ways probably metaphoric, um, that desert landscape. Um, you know, I th didn't you also wrote a story, not to be personal, but about your husband's death, didn't you? Mm -mm. You didn't. There, there's a thread of that in the Hearts of Horses. Oh, no, I'm I thinking think of a maybe story. Terry is thinking of the story that you wrote about the woman whose husband dies, but you wrote it long before. Your husband died. Oh, well, that was before. Oh, yeah. The, the one story where I they're in the snow. Oh, yeah, that story. It's called Little Hills. Um, it's about a, an older couple, and uh, their car gets stuck in the snow, and the, and the husband dies of a heart attack. Um, it's no, it's a very quiet little story. It's not science fiction at all. Um, and I wrote it years before my husband died and before right. he was sick. Yeah. It's safe to write a story about it. That's what? Why is that? <laughs> I think he's just suggesting that you don't actually cause their deaths by writing the story, that their deaths probably no, would have happened <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I never worried about that. I just thought it was bizarre that I had written that story. Well, tell us a little something about what uh, Hearts of Horses is about. Oh. Um, well, the, hard, the Hearts of Horses is uh, a historical novel. It's set in the winter of 1917 and 1918 in ranch country in eastern Oregon, um, the, the cattle, cattle ranch west. Um, a girl who's 19 years old is breaking horses for some farmers and ranchers, and it's uh, also the lives of those people for whom she's breaking horses. Um, and the war, that was the first year that the United States was involved in World War I. The war had been going on quite a while in Europe, years in Europe, but we had just joined the fight. And so the war is the background to the, to the novel. Um, there are many, it turns out, many, many parallels in World War I to the war we're in currently. Um, there was a, a, an Infringement of Civil Rights Act passed that has many, many resemblances to the Patriot Act. Um, there was a, a tremendous amount of prejudice against 
anybody of German heritage in similar ways to the prejudice we now show toward Muslims and people of Arabic descent. And um, even in small ways, it's very similar. Um, do you, you remember when we, f when we first got into this war and the French weren't willing to support us and people were mouthing off about how we were going to start calling French fries freedom fries? Remember that? That's directly from World War I um, during the war that people were saying, oh, we should call sauerkraut liberty cabbage, um, things like that. It's, it's really quite uncanny <laughs> how similar that war was, that part of things at, in the home, at home about World War I, except for the fact that everybody was making sacrifices during the war and supporting it in a patriotic way, and that isn't happening. We're not making sacrifices. We're not asked to make sacrifices. Even in World War I? I wasn't aware of that. Tremendous amount of, yeah, sacrifice. All the women were knitting socks for the Army and putting together Red Cross kits. Huh. And, oh, yeah, and, and electricity went dark in a lot of the towns three nights a week, and people weren't um, heating their homes because their wood was to be saved for the, for the war and all kinds of things like that. Hmm. Lots of people were put in jail just for, um, just for protesting the war, or soldiers were put in jail under the act, the, the act similar to the Patriot Act. Soldiers were put in jail if they complained about the food in the army and things like that. So does that play in the, are any of the people German in the story, yeah. or is that? Yeah, there's a German family in the, in the novel, yeah. Cool. Mm -hmm. It's a lively crowd. Um, Karen, what's your, what's your new book about? <laughs> uh, it's a contemporary novel. Um, it involves, uh, the, there has two main characters, um, one of whom is an elderly woman who is an extremely um, successful mystery writer, just uh, Agatha Christie sort of successful, and um, has created a detective who is even more famous than she is and who also has, plays a role in the story, this, this fictional detective. And so um, she lives in Santa Cruz, California. She lives in a house that I um, have modeled somewhat after um, James Houston's house, a fairly famous Victorian in Santa Cruz because it was uh, owned by one of the survivors of the Donner Party. So, Not James Houston, the writer. James Houston, the writer, yes. Oh, he, uh, he bought the house? He, he, and yes, he lives in the house. Oh. I, my house is a Victorian, like his, also owned by a survivor of the Donner Party. Um, but bears no other resemblance. I have moved it closer to the ocean than James Houston's house. I have now actually been in James Houston's house, but at the time I wrote the book, I had not. So as it turns out, my house does not look like James Houston's house. Um, so it's a haunted house story. It's sort of a haunted house story, sort of. Um, what? The, the house was once owned by a survivor of the Donner Party. She, yes, she has, she is no longer a survivor. <laughs> she has, she died like all the rest. She died like all the rest. <laughs> Probably because Karen wrote about her. <laughs> and uh, my main character is a young woman who comes to stay in the house and um, gets caught up in the detective stories. The ghost. <laughs> if you, it's a ghost story. If you wish there to be a ghost, a then house, there's right? a ghost. <laughs> okay. All right. Rhea. 
tables, and this may actually be the elephant in the room. But I had a question about the movie. About the movie. <laughs> yes. The Donner sure. movie? Yes. The movie about <laughs> the Donner party that uh, Karen will, I'm sure, write an excellent screenplay for. Um, I was looking at these freebie little posters we had for the Jane Austen Book Club movie, and they actually have a little plug for you at the bottom, except it just says, read the Jane Austen Book Club from Plume, next to this huge advert for read the Jane Austen novels from Penguin Classics. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I, uh, does it say read the Jane Austen novel by who? No, it does not. Oh, I think it's in little teeny tiny letters in the credits. Uh, no. <laughs> oh, oh, no, there it is, at the bottom, ba based on the book. And I will take that uh, you know, as my, the jumping off point for my question, based on the book. Um, as a writer seeing, you know, this labor of love that you sweated and struggled with and saw great success with it being a New York Times bestseller and everything, for which we were all very happy, all us science fiction fans everywhere, um, what was the actual experience like of seeing your work translated into a movie as an author? How well did that sit with you or not? <laughs> It was, pause. <laughs> it was it was it was honestly just really trippy you know that I um, the first time I saw the movie uh, I had a I had a, actually a, an experience very similar to when I went to see the first of the Lord of the Ring movies <laughs> where I just sat there thinking this doesn't suck as badly as I thought it was going to. <laughs> Just with kind of enormous relief, and another scene would come, and I would think, you know, that scene really didn't suck as badly as I thought it was going to either. <laughs> and so when I left both that movie and my own movie, my f strong feeling was that didn't suck as badly as I expected it to. I couldn't really think about whether it was a good movie or not um, until the second time I saw it. And... Um, and I thought it didn't suck as badly as I expected it to the second time that I saw it, too. But it, I, one of the things that happened early on with the Jane Austen Book Club was that I got, for the very first time, an audio book deal on it, which I had always really wanted. I'd always thought that it would just be quite wonderful to sit and listen to somebody really professional read aloud the words that you had written. And I found that I did not like that at all, that w I couldn't even listen to it, that it really felt to me, although I think the woman who did read it did a wonderful job, that I, I just really felt that it had been taken from me in some way, that it did, you know, she didn't emphasize the words I would have emphasized. She didn't read it the way I would have read it. it um, I expected to really enjoy that, and I really did not. And the movie was so removed from the book that I minded it much less. You know, it, it just felt like something entirely different that had um, many enjoyable features in it um, and, and very little to do with my book. So I, I, didn't, I didn't feel at all the same way. And I didn't feel at all um, the same sense of outrage that I generally feel when I love a book and I go to the movie and see what they've done to the second Lord of the Rings book. I, I did not sit and feel, well, that didn't suck the way I expected it to. I thought, this really sucks. But that's just one woman's opinion. Did you get paid for the movie? I did get paid for the movie. 
I got very, very nicely paid for the movie. She got ten thousand dollars. Well, that's what she told me. <laughs> <laughs> Please. Were you involved at all in the screenwriting process? No, no. I think that it was quite deliberate that I not be told that there was a screenwriting process until it was all done. I think uh, um, didn't Curtis ask about that earlier? Where'd he go? Justin. Justin, yes. Ask about the screenwriting process. I'm sorry, that never, almost never happens. They, you know, it just. Uh, but I, I've never had a movie made, but I've, I have no friends that have, and and I, I've hardly ever hear of anybody actually getting to write a screenplay, or sometimes they'll. Well, actually, um, I think Bill Gibson got to write. It got credited for writing the screenplay for Johnny, Johnny Mnemonic. Johnny Mnemonic, yeah, I think but he did. But my understanding is that he actually didn't. <laughs> uh, I don't think he, I think he worked on it. But anyway, I think that's, uh, it's not unusual. Uh, I think when, you know, I think when they adapt a book, I think that, that people who love the book or people who wrote the book imagine that what they want to do is put the book on the screen in some right. way. Which is not what. And they don't. What they want to do is tell the very best story they can, using whatever bits of the book allow them to do that. Right. So it, it's you know their their goal is not to be faithful to the book, but to to make a really good movie, to tell a really good story. And I think that they're always afraid that the writer will have his goal being faithful to the book. Do you ever think about? Uh, uh, like Jump Off Creek to me would make a great movie, and but westerns are problematic these days. Do you? What is? As, have you ever optioned any of your stuff? The Jump Off Creek's been optioned twice and is currently under option. Uh huh. Yeah, but so you know it's been out for eighteen years and nothing's happened yet. So don't hold your breath. But it does seem like every few years they bring back the western. You know, Kevin Costner does yeah. it or Clint Eastwood <coughs> does it, and it's always. But they've never, nobody's ever tried to do a woman's Western in quite the way that. Um, oh, I, I don't, don't know. Think there was so. that Sharon Stone movie where she put on double guns and <laughs> You're right. shot up the town. Well, you know. The, but the Quick and the Dead? Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. God, that was a good movie. Yeah, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but it does seem like there, there might be some little niche market for, a, a, you know, a. I don't know a, a woman's western, but I don't know. I don't. Um, they don't seem to any big hurry to do this. So, what are you working on now? Not a thing. Oh, interesting. Poems. I'm writing a few poems. Ah, what does that mean? Are you? I didn't know it that means you I'm were. Between books, it means I don't have an idea for another book. Um, I don't know what it means. And do you publish? Means I eat out a lot. Play solitaire. Play solitaire. Yeah. I'm taking watercolor painting lessons, riding a horse every week. I'm really busy. I don't have time for riding. <laughs> where do you keep your where do you keep a horse? I don't keep a horse. I uh I go to a stable about twenty minutes from my house and ride a Kiger Mustang named Cece. So you always ride the same horse? Mm -hmm. yep. Cool. What kind of horse do you ride? <laughs> <laughs> I had a question for these ladies. You know, you both kind of write historical novels, and you both write uh, science fiction, and there's some kind of simpatico between those genres, so maybe you could talk about that? 
We um, we actually have talked about that a little bit during this visit a couple of mm -hmm. times. That uh, you know, in some ways, the the project is very very similar. If you're trying to imagine a hundred years forward, or you're trying to imagine a hundred years back, that the um, the distinction between the two is not as easy for us to see in terms of of the effort made or the, the work that has to be done. Well, well. And, and why, why that appeals to us rather than writing mostly, say, contemporary work, although Karen writes more contemporary stuff than I do, but still we're both attracted to the past or the future more than we're attracted to contemporary work. And you, had, you said something really, I thought, um, appropriate about that yesterday that resonated with me, which it has to do with um, starting the work that that do to write about the past or the future really you have to do some research first and the research stimulates the work it, it's really really enjoyable part of the process and um, and helps me to get moving I have a hard time just sitting down and thinking about something to write about life the way we live it today where I don't have to do any reading or research first the reading and research that's necessary to create an imaginary world of the past or the future um, is good from, I think, for both of us, for our process. Well, I don't think of your, I mean, Sarah Canary's hist historical in the same sense that, uh, I don't know about Sister Noon, I haven't read it's it. It's historical. <laughs> and it's set in the West, is it the same kind San of thing? It's set in San Francisco in the 1890s. Oh, okay. Well, All even right. Sweet Art Season, which is not contemporary. I mean, it's set back in what? The 1947. 40s, yeah. Yeah, but, you know. You know, I, I think that's, I mean, I that struck a chord, but it doesn't really explain the fact that, because you have to do research about any, anything you write about. As Carter just whispered to me, he has to do research about the present. Well, he's and still got that to do. <laughs> <laughs> Some of us do. <laughs> There's something else that's attractive, I think, that uh, that you haven't identified yet. I don't know. I just I think I feel when I start a book, uh, uh, you know, that that if I'm going to be looking at the future, or as I generally uh, more often do, that I'm going to be looking at the past. That there's something to me about the fact that it the process starts not just with the research, but it starts in in words. That I'm I'm looking at books. I'm looking at um, newspaper articles that I'm already in an imaginary space as I'm doing the reading and that it's easier for me to go from that imaginary space where I'm I'm trying to picture a place and, and uh, the way things looked and the way things smelled and the way the clothing felt um, th that it just sort of jump starts my imagination so that when I turn to trying to think of the people and the incidents that will be in the book. Uh, I'm already partway there in a way that I'm not if I'm looking out the window or sitting on the bus, you know, listening to people, um, actual conversations and looking at actual things out my window. That Please. Yeah, I, I actually crawled down the stairs to get to, to come over and ask you something that finally came to me, and that is I think of both of you as very, very advanced in dealing with uh, things that most writers don't. You're both women, and you both write about brave women, 
And uh, I think that that's a, a feature of your work. I don't know how much you've even thought about it, but uh, I'd like to uh, have uh, I'd like to uh, have you both address uh, why your your work is unique in this respect. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, <laughs> I would love to think that that's what we do, and um, but I I guess. I'm not certain that our work is, or that my work is unique in that respect. Um, I, I do, I do think, um, particularly when I'm dealing with historical settings, that one of the things that that I've noticed as I as I do re historical research and I do historical reading, is how quickly the things that women said and did and accomplished uh, are erased. From the historical record, so that as the as the record becomes, you know, sort of bleached of its color and 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 generalized into sort of trends and things that that might have happened, that um, I'm sure that that for men as well as women, the kind of peculiar lives that people actually led are one of the first things that disappears. So um, I I feel whenever I'm doing any kind of research that any time I am, I have the impression that people are more unusual today or more outrageous today or that the political scene is more outrageous today or anything of that sort that I probably have not looked closely enough at the period that I'm looking at. Um, I, I grew up reading cowboy lit and Western fiction of all kinds. Um, and when I began to write The Jump Off Creek in the 1980s, um, I, I wanted to write the novel that I couldn't find at the library, which was um, the, a Western novel in which a woman was holding up the middle. Um, I wanted to make her not the wife or the sister or the daughter of the homesteader, but the homesteader herself. And at that point, I'd been reading Western literature for probably 30 years, and I really had no idea whether any women had actually <coughs> homesteaded on their own. And I just set out to write this novel thinking that I might be creating a character who didn't, in fact, exist in, in real history. And then when I began to do the research, I was astonished to find that um, as many as 20% of homestead claims were filed by women, and women had a better rate of proving up than men did. And where is that history? It disappeared. It was gone. Um, in, and, and certainly gone from all the literature, you know, not just the histories. It was gone from the histories, too, but completely not there in any of the fiction about the West, that huge body of Western fiction. And there were no, uh, virtually no, women homesteaders in it despite the fact that there were many, many of them in, in history. So it, it was partly, I guess, that that's sort of focused my attention. I s am still wanting to write uh, often about uh, the West, and it seems like those are, s those are the stories that haven't been told. I could, I could write you know, novels about men. Men are in all my books, but I focus them on women that I think were ignored and that haven't um, had much fiction written about them. Um, girls who broke horses in the 1910s. It turns out there were quite a few of them. Um, when's the last time you heard about a girl breaking horses in the 1910s? So um, it seems like a f 
a happy thing for me as a writer that I can focus on that and have a wide open field because nobody else is writing about them. So where's the research, uh, just for a second, where do, you, where do you find these stories? I mean, not the ones you write, but the ones that you sort of research. Well, the homesteading women, I found their stories in memoirs, letters, diaries, and, and in the regional histories, the kinds of things that, um, oh, you know, like the, the history of a county. Um, if you're in a bed and breakfast in some little tiny town and they might have that history on the coffee table or it might be for sale in the local little tiny historical museum that it's usually written by some native son or daughter um, they've self-published it or it's been published by the local historical society it's often you know not really even bound it's you know typescript and, and stapled and in those histories of a county for instance Often what they are is just a paragraph about everybody who's ever lived there, basically. And, and it was in those kinds of regional histories that I discovered all these women, tons of these women, widows who went on running the homestead after their husband died, um, single women who came out from the east and homesteaded, uh, sisters who homesteaded together. I read about four sisters who filed claims on four adjacent homestead claims. And there was a rule you had to have a house on every claim, and so they built their houses all in a cluster at the <laughs> intersection of the four of the four claims. Um, that that kind of stuff I would find in the in the research. Um, Hearts of horses, girls breaking horses. I read about those girls probably 15 years ago. I read about them in an oral history that Teresa Jordan had written, um, a collection of oral histories about women who, living in the West, working in the West, and an old woman who was recalling the 1910s and World War I and who said, I quote, there were girls who came through the country in those days breaking horses. So that's where you start. Interesting. You had a question. I um, live just a, a, a quite a short distance from the library on the campus of UC Davis, so it's it's easy walking distance from my house, and um, I've spent a lot of time there, and I've also spent a lot of time in the state library in Sacramento, which is also not walking distance, but close to where I live, and I um, I just I have a a bachelor's degree and I have a master's degree and what I feel the the main thing I learned in college is that I know my way around a library I know how to how to find what I want in a library and um, and I love being in a library and I'm I have this sort of peculiar geekish thrill if I pull a book off a shelf and I look at it and I think no one has checked this book out in 72 years <laughs> <laughs> and I'm holding it in my hand. Um, I, I Frequently I'll, I'll go into a library, I'll have just a very vague kind of idea of what I might be interested in. I'll start um, looking up, you know, keywords, clusters and um, and what will happen as I begin to go out in the shelves is that next to the book I go to actually get is the book I actually want. 
and and I'll I'll just discover it because it happens to be on the shelf where I am and um, I I do I read a lot of when when I'm researching something in particular when I'm actually writing a book and I'm looking for specifics I spend a lot of time reading newspapers and magazines from the period that I'm looking at which um, are, are always filled with surprises I think always many one of my favorite examples of this uh, I when I talk about when I talk about Sister Noon a lot that when I'm researching a historical novel, uh, things for a historical novel, what I'm really looking for are <coughs> the things that surprise me. You know, I, I feel if I'm setting a novel in the 1890s that we all have a kind of default picture in our head of what San Francisco might have looked like in the 1890s. And I'm really looking for things that are not in that default picture. And the, the example I like to use for Sister Noon is that I knew, you know, this is where at that still in the Victorian period, and I knew that women in the 1890s of a certain class would be corseted. I knew that women in San Francisco would be wearing corsets, but I did not know until I went and looked at the magazines and the newspapers that you could buy those corsets in infant sizes, that it was possible in the 1890s to buy a corset for your brand new baby girl wow. and give her the hourglass figure that you wished she had. Wow. Well, I said a minute ago that I, I'm just remembering Sweetheart Season, and you're absolutely, that's as historical as Victorian San Francisco. Now that I think about it, there was a lot of research that went into that, and, and I sort of tossed it, it off as 1940. But 1947 was several centuries ago, I think, in the Midwest, right? That in was the Midwest, in, yeah, yes. Yeah, that was, uh, that was a What I loved about one. the research for that book, one of the things that I loved about it is that I read a lot of the magazines focused on women in 1947, and what I just began to see was a hysterical drumbeat um, telling women that they must not have sex until they were married. That, and, I, and it was so insistent that I began to think, my God, none of them are waiting until they're <laughs> married. Obviously, it's a huge problem. The magazines are hysterical about it. Wow. Which my mother had not shared with me. <laughs> Imagine that. Um, well, um, Cliff. Yeah. Serious question this time. Um, both of y'all's stories were on some level about something ineffable or uh, ironically about something that has nothing to do with words. Uh, Molly's first contact scenario is the only one that I'm familiar with that doesn't involve any speech, at least not verbal speech or telepathic speech or something like that. And uh, Karen's is kind of almost Lovecraftian in its like you can't actually know what everyone knows that's going to affect their minds and, and make them do crazy stuff from our perspective, like never leave the people you're with. So I was wondering um, if either of you or both of you would like to talk about um, sort of the idea of writing in words that ab about a central thing that can't be described in words, right, and, and how you go about doing that. <laughs> and you can use your words. To <laughs> 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 well, 
or not. Maybe or we can not. act it out. <laughs> I have no idea what I would even say in reply to that. I have no idea at all. I don't um I don't know that that I would set out as a goal when I'm writing a story thinking to myself I'm going to try to say I'm going to try to end somewhere that can't be said um, or or use as a strategy things that can't be said but I do think that that that's a lot of what poetry is about which you've now yeah. told us that you're writing <laughs> do you I guess the only the only thing that occurs to me to say and it's pro it's not probably at all what you've asked but um, I do feel that there are just a handful of questions that I'm always looking at in all my fiction. Just a few things, and I, I just keep turning them over and looking at them in different ways, in different stories, but there's just a handful of them. And, and some of them are obvious. I mean, I, I'm always thinking about the human response to wilderness, the human place in, in wild, um, that kind of thing. Um, the cowboy myth in American culture, those kinds of things. But one of the things that I always seem to be thinking about and, and wanting to write about, too, is, is how people talk to each other or don't talk to each other. So that's actually been uh, a, a central uh, question in several of my science fiction stories where I've had people who can uh, understand each other telepathically, that kind of thing. It's one of the things about science fiction that I find really appealing is that is that how people can understand each other at a different level and um, so in this story for instance where really there's no almost no words spoken between um, between Delia and the 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 dog person it's um, me it's okay I'm here yeah um, it, it's about uh, body language and um, how it's impossible, really, or maybe it's not. Is it possible or not possible for these two things to communicate with each other in this um, impossible way? Um, and how Delia is ver a very silent person who mostly doesn't even talk to her dogs. Um, and that's just a question that I'm interested in. I'm interested in people and why they're quiet or not quiet and when they do speak, why they pick the words to say what they say and, and I can't tell you why I'm particularly interested in that but I am it's in Hearts of Horses too well she's a horse whisperer right yeah is that words or just n sounds body language almost entirely body language and and I I've done a little bit of it and I got in the round pen with a Mustang an un unbroken Mustang and um, had uh, this woman who's a, tr a horse whisperer um, coaching me from the railings um, took me way way longer than it takes her but but in three or four hours had taken this wild horse that had never been touched by human beings had reached the point where I could touch him all over his body lift up his front feet um, put a bridle, bridle on him walk him around the corral take the bridle off walk away walk back and bridle him again um, entirely by body language and it does feel like you're trying to speak to an alien you know like um, like you you are learning this cross-species communication it's really a, an amazing <coughs> thing to experience and that you 
can be misunderstood. I like when you yeah. told the story before you talked about how she told you to make some sort of move with yeah. your hand and that you made she it, said, but you made it too large. She said, wiggle, wiggle your fingers, you know, because Buck was his very inauspiciously named cult named Buck. <laughs> um, <laughs> she said, you know, Buck is, um, he was just standing, sort of looking at me, and she said, get him going again, get him going around the corral, and she said, just do it with a little, a little gesture of your fingers. And so I did that, you know, just I put my hand out maybe a foot away from my hip and, and wiggled my fingers. He just went crazy. I mean, he just <laughs> was running around the crowd just wild as can be. And, and, and Leslie said, no, 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 not that much. Just, <laughs> you know, just ha hang your hand right down by your leg and just barely move your fingers. They're just so sensitive to any, any kind of body language at all. And I, I had to learn to... To, to be the same with him. I had to learn to react to his body language, and his body language was very, very subtle. So like, she would say, watch for his hindquarters to come around. And I'd be watching so hard, I'd be thinking I was watching really, really hard for that to happen, so that, because as soon as it happened, I was supposed to do this other thing, you know? And I'm watching, 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 and she says, there! And I say, where? <laughs> <laughs> it was really hard, it was very difficult. Wow. Well, one thing I was thinking, you know, I was talking about the first contact stories. And in a sense, I think all of us science fiction writers today are kind of working changes on themes that have already been set up. There's just not that many new things you can do with science fiction. And I've written uh, several first contact stories. And in all of them, there's never nobody, there's never any understanding. You know, it's it's always kind of the point of it is that there, there's not any contact. You know, and that I think is one of the things I liked about your story because there's nothing said. There's no, there's no galactic message. There's nothing that we <laughs> we learn. You know, and yet the contact is actually made. You know, and I, I don't think it's just me. I think most first contact stories, or a lot of them, are are about. Well, maybe it's just man, but anyway, they're about non-contact, and I think that's what's so moving about that one that it that it happens. But I I would disagree with Cliff. I think, uh, you know, you're right. This is a woman that doesn't say a lot, but Karen's stories all uh, she's all talk. You know, it's all about a narrator, an unreliable narrator who who never shuts up, and she gives you everything. You know, you get it all through her eyes and and uh so i i don't think that's actually a story about uh except her and her sister never talk directly right or do they well they, they don't have any know. conversations okay you know it's about <laughs> you know we we get it all from one unreliable point of My view my point was that the narrator missed the big event and she sort of she imagined it yes that's Right. Well, I would like to say too that um, you know, to me, the fact that you that in science fiction we rework certain themes to me is one of the great pleasures of it. That you that you do feel that there's a long conversation going on, and that this is now your part of it. And um, I, this summer, I uh, taught at the Squaw Valley Workshop and was on a panel about writing short stories in which nobody else did genre work. It was all literary short stories. And, and you know, I was talking about responding to stories and, um, 
and um, and reading stories as responses to other stories. And it was obviously, I mean, that was an alien. Apparently, I was speaking an alien language. Everybody <laughs> else on the panel was just kind of astonished that that you would write as part of uh, a tradition, or, or that, that that would be a, a reason to write a story, that somebody else had written a story that annoyed you, and that therefore you would write a story in response to it, which seems to me is most of science fiction. <laughs> right. Well, and on the, uh, like Molly's story actually really endeavors and succeeds for quite a while in saying this is not a science fiction story. It's yes. like, you know, and then and then she uh, she ambushes you. And you were talking about reading that to a yeah. non... I've read, it, I've read it several times to non-science fiction audiences, people who know me mostly as the writer of The Jump Off Creek and, um, and who don't even know at all that I write science fiction. And I love reading it to them because they're so sucked in. And they don't have a clue that it's going to make this turn. And when it gets to a certain point in the story, I can feel I can feel the room suddenly become so quiet. <laughs> you can hear a pin drop, and people are leaning forward. And I've actually had people. I had one woman come up to me after the piece and say to me, "I I couldn't believe you were going where you were. I kept thinking." Oh, she's not going there. Oh my God, she's going there. <laughs> <laughs> that horrible place. <laughs> it's a great pleasure. Yeah. Well, I, I've had the experience of also reading uh, a, a more, a much more conventional science fiction story, and and it, it, you just draw a blank because I think one one of the other pleasures about science fiction is that the readers are ex, are paying close attention because they want to be fooled or tricked. They want there to be something they have to figure out it's like a mystery you know you're, you're trying to figure out what's the what's the gimmick what's the trick where where are we what you know and so they're they're looking for a, a uh, and and a lot of people you know like a regular mainstream audience won't even get it they'll just kind of you know they're they're just kind of in a fog listen to the uh, language or something I don't know <laughs> maybe it's the way I read you don't have that experience right <laughs> Which experience? Of where you read a story, a science fiction story to people, and they look at you like you, you're wearing a lampshade on your head. Or, or, <laughs> or, or, they don't get it. They don't get, they don't get how it fits in with science fiction or something. I don't know. I don't know. Well, let me add, we're running out of time, but t tell me something about, um, uh, to me, the Jane Austen book club was a very different uh, seemed like different to me it seemed like I mean how did you what did you think when you started that book were you just having fun with it was it well it's a romantic comedy I mean it just is it is and and I'm not a romantic comedy kind of girl so um, I think that 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 part was great fun you know that there were a lot of things that I felt I was allowed to do because Jane Austen was the model that I wouldn't ordinarily have allowed myself to do. And that was my question, I guess, yeah. Um, yeah. But I also feel, um, and you know, that certainly one of the impulses for writing the, story, the, the book is, I think that Jane Austen is a very, very, very easy writer to underestimate. And that if you think what she writes is romantic comedies, then 
um, you're not reading the same books that I'm reading. Oh, yeah? Because <laughs> I do think that's what she's right. But uh, I don't know. Hmm. I just think she's, she's a very tough-minded. And uh, for someone known for writing romantic comedies, I don't think there has ever well, right. been a less romantic writer. I well, I she does not have a romantic vision of the world. She does not. Um, she, you know, she certainly talks in her books very openly about money far more than she talks about love. And uh, she's just she's a gimlet-eyed kind of writer who, um, if you haven't read the books yourself and are basing it on the movies or on some sort of impression that you have about the books then you think they're a lot softer than they are. I beg your pardon. I've read the books. <laughs> no, I, anyway, we're not, uh, yeah, I would agree with that, but I think, uh, I mean, Emma's a romantic comedy. I mean, it. anyway, we're th that's, that's getting off the subject. That's getting on to Jane Austen. But it did seem like, I mean, in a sense, it seems like your science fiction is, everybody's science fiction is in a way, uh, you know, like we're in the tradition, but we're always fighting against the genre in a sense. We're, we're, and it seemed to me like from the moment I picked that book up, there was a kind of, a, you were kind of relaxing into a genre that was a little unfamiliar and starting to have fun with it. That's what it seemed to me like. That, that, um, I'll, I'll accept that as probably pretty accurate. I also think, you know, one of the things that was very interesting to me when I started writing the book, and I started telling people in the science fiction community that I was writing this book about Jane Austen, or about Jane Austen's books, um, I, was, I was both pleased and surprised at how many science fiction writers were enormous Austen fans. It, the, you know, there was often, uh, unexpectedly, a lot of enthusiasm about this idea when I talked to science fiction readers and writers about it. And what was what one of the things that interested me about it was that when they talked to me about the Jane Austen books as they re read them, they read them as if they were science fiction books. You know, that it, it's kind of a world building adventure that, you know, you're in a landscape that you don't really understand and the rules of engagement are things that you don't really understand. So. So when they talked about reading the books of Jane Austen, it sounded to me, you know, that they might as well have been reading um, any of the, the rest of us. <laughs> and I, and I, I thought that that was interesting, uh, partly because my own reading of Jane Austen had not been that way at all. And, and it seemed like a much more interesting way to read Austen than the way that I had read her. But I read her... Um, you know, I was in. I grew up in um, Palo Alto, California, in 1968. I graduated high school and went to college. I started reading Austen when I was in high school, and it was all. It w did not seem to me like a strange or unfamiliar world. It seemed, you know, like Palo Alto High School. Uh, the the rules very very similar. Made perfect sense to me. If a girl liked a boy, she must show it in no way. At, at any point, um, and, and merely hope that his attention would somehow magically turn to her, um, <laughs> at which point she must not be very encouraging. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, that there were these, these very clu clear rules that m 
boys did not like to be chased. I cannot tell you how many times I was told that growing up. Um, turned out, as far as I can see, to be an utter lie, <laughs> absolute lie, um, that, you know, that, and that you, you needed to follow these rules, and that if you didn't, you know, if in some way you were easy, you were aggressive, you were openly interested, you involved yourself in a lifetime of ruin and regret. Um, so, you know, the Austen novels just all made perfect sense to me. And, um, and then 1968 came and I went to Berkeley and it became pretty clear that Austen's rules no longer applied. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, one of the things I like about Austen, one of the things that I'm interested in her is exactly the same thing that interests me in science fiction, which is the creation of communities around books. That there are, you know, there are many, many books that are wonderful books, but there are really a handful that create communities where people love the books so much that they want to spend their weekends with other people who love the books and perhaps dress as if they lived in the books and pretend with other people that they live in the books. And if you've ever been, as I have, to the general uh, meeting of the Jane Austen Society of North America. It is nothing, um, it is like nothing more than a science fiction convention. It's exactly the same thing. You're going to papers, you're hearing people talk about nerdy, nerdy, nerdy topics, um, uh, much like you're at ICFA, um, and people are in bonnets, and <laughs> many people have made the costumes themselves because there would be no machine stitching in Austin's time. And therefore, they've done them by hand, and they're Klingons or they're dressed for a country dance. I don't see the distinction. <laughs> <laughs> well, anybody got any? Um, this has been great. It's been a great year. Come see us in. Uh, we don't know who we're going to have in January. Uh, yeah, it'll be a surprise. And um, <laughs> but anyway, it's been um, this has been one of my favorites, two of my favorite writers. Thank you both. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.